The reading for today is Mark 3, 22-35. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty in eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Amy. Good morning. Hi, Frank. (laughs) Uh, My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. I am not normally the guy that is the, the preaching pastor, Frank. Our, our friend here saying hi very loudly. He's the normal guy that preaches. Um, as kind of a, a new guy learning the ropes of, of ministry, every once in a while Frank will toss me the, the, the preaching rope and to, to kind of see whether I'll swing on it or hang from it. So I hope to swing. Uh, if I hang from it, then you can blame Frank. Um, a quick word about Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists as one church with nine congregations in and in, in around Arizona. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And the way Redemption Church kind of operates is we, we preach through books of the Bible and we do this together. We, we do this in a way that each local church has a, a local pastor. We don't do live video casts or anything. And that local pastor will preach through the same section of the Bible. And so as, as a whole, Redemption Church at large has been working through the, the book of Mark, which is an historical account of Jesus' life. And we find ourselves picking up where we left off And today we're going to look at a section in Mark that talks about uh, Jesus' family. Jesus' family. And I found this interesting as I studied through this because, do you ever think about it? Like, what was Jesus' family like? Who were they? How did they interact with Jesus? What was maybe, what what was Jesus like as a kid? We we don't know. The, The Gospels don't give us a ton of information about how Jesus was as a kid. But we do get glimpses into his family life and how they operated. And we're going to kind of catch a glimpse of that today. And so um, we're going to pick up in verse 20. Although we didn't read verse 20, that's where we're going to start. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, Mark 3, and we're going to work uh, verses 20 in through the the very end of the chapter. We notice from last week that Frank said what? Jesus gathers and sends his disciples for, for two purposes primarily, to preach and to cast out demons. That's what they were doing at the time when Jesus was gathering people to himself and sending them out. It was to um, have the authority to, to cast out demons and to preach. And as you can imagine, this casting out of demons would have generated quite a bit of curiosity because it's kind of strange. Like this, this supernatural event of casting out demons, it's kind of odd. 
And so crowds of people are just flocking to Christ. They're coming to him in droves. And this flocking of people started to, to become so large, so numerous, that eventually it, it started to create problems for, for Jesus. And we see sort of a problem begin here. So let's look at verse 20, and we'll read. So then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So the crowd was so numerous that Jesus, pardon me, um, Jesus couldn't even sit down and have a meal. There were so many people around him that they couldn't even have a meal. And this is what happens. Look at verse 21. Kind of out, of out of a response to that. When his family heard it, and they'd heard that the crowd was gathering around him, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. This is an interesting story. Jesus' family saying he's out of his mind. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, this is, a, this is a, a story that demonstrates that Jesus' family, they weren't initially on board with who Jesus was and who, what his mission was, what he was trying to accomplish. They were interested in sort of redirecting him to suit their purposes. They were trying to seize him, and then they were saying, they were accusing him of being out of his mind. I find that interesting, a little bit odd. This story is also interesting because it starts here, but it kind of gets suspended. It doesn't end. Um, there's another story that sort of interrupts it, and that's this next section about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we read, and we're going we're gonna to work through. That story interrupts it seemingly, and, and seems unrelated to this initial story, but what's cool is the way Mark frames this, and we'll see this later, is that all of this ties together. All this ties together, and it tells one story, and I think makes one central point, and my hope is that we'll see that together today. So let's look at this next section about the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This next section has generated quite a bit of confusion about eternal sins. Is there a sin from which you can't be forgiven? And as was usual for Jesus and the religious authorities of the time, a verbal sparring match is about to unfold between these, these two. And we see this, that they came down, the text says, the, the, religious, the scribes, the religious authorities, they came down from Jerusalem. What that means is, they came down not from, not from north to south, but from elevation to, to de-elevation. Jerusalem was situated more, uh, more highly than the rest of the cities in Israel. And oftentimes what that meant or what that brought with it was sort of an air of superiority among the religious leaders that they were going to come down and they were going to make the judgment on um, this Jesus guy. The thing of it is, they had already written him off. We, we saw this several weeks ago in the beginning of the book of Mark. They had already written Jesus off as a, a religious wingnut. Like, he was, he was crazy, they weren't listening to him, and they had been plotting how to destroy him, chapter, chapter 3, verse 6 says. And so, now they're coming down, and Mark uses this language of coming down from Jerusalem to describe sort of the, the condescension with which they came. And what do they say? What is the verdict that they render of him? They say, Jesus is demonic. Say, Jesus is demonic. The, the officials who were placing Jesus sort of under religious investigation, they had decided, this guy is possessed. This guy is working his miracles through Beelzebul. And this name Beelzebul was likely an ancient term that Jews used to um, describe Satan. So they were 
equating Jesus' work with the work of the devil. They were saying, this guy is nuts. This guy is possessed. This guy doesn't have it together. Therefore, he is working uh, satanic miracles. Um, as if those can even go together, satanic miracles. Right? But those are their words. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. By the realm of darkness, he was doing his work, according to the scribes. What they were doing was, is they were calling something good, evil. And we do this today, by the way, just with less serious things. Like, we'll say things like, that chocolate cake is devilish, right? Or, um, heavy metal music is from the devil, right? We say these kinds of things. That's not true, though, right? <laughs> or, or, we'll say things like, um, all house cats are evil and are plotting to kill you, right? Is that true? Yes, that's true. Absolutely. <laughs> um, no, but it's, it's one thing to call cats evil, but it's a whole other thing to call Jesus evil. And, and notice the seriousness with which Jesus responds to that claim. Look at verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? The negative tone of this rhetorical question was meant to elicit an obvious answer. How how can Satan cast out Satan? He can't. He wouldn't do that. That's suicide. That's nuts. That doesn't make any sense. And so to, to forcefully demonstrate that point, look what Jesus does in verses 24 through 26. He says this, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. It, I love what Jesus does here. It's like he pulls the rug out from underneath the scribes and demonstrates the absurdity of their logic by simply appealing to simple logic, saying, would Satan cast out Satan? No, that's, that's the obvious answer. No, he, he wouldn't do that. That wouldn't make sense. That would be completely counterproductive to Satan's mission, right? He wouldn't do that. That would be suicide. And the problem is, is these scribes, they weren't interested in receiving Jesus' logic. They weren't interested in truth. They weren't interested in, in having a, a conversation with sound reason. And you know what's interesting? Isn't that true for some of us? We're not interested in logic or truth. We're not interested in Jesus. We're interested in our own lives. And yet, Jesus isn't worried that these scribes are going to fool him or trick him. He's not worried. And he's, he makes this point by saying, Satan is not rising up against Satan. If a, if a kingdom is divided... It, it won't stand. It simply won't stand. And so notice this. Just as Jesus is starting to, his ministry is starting to take off, he's performing signs and wonders, these scribes come to him and they accuse him of this, saying he's, he's, he's blasphemous, he's, he's lost his mind, he's nuts, he's possessed. And Jesus makes this clear in the next verse that Satan is not behind his work, but that Jesus is the one who is working Satan out of uh, the, the world of, at that time. And, and I would say currently in our world today, that Jesus is beginning to crush Satan. So look at verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods 
unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. By his actions, what Jesus was doing here is he was saying or proving to them who that someone stronger was. His power, his authority, his rule was, was freeing people from Satan and, and demons. Satan's kingdom wasn't just like breaking up from the inside, but it was being conquered from the outside. And this was Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was expanding and it was crushing Satan's territory. I think of like the, the treads on a tank just rolling in and just crushing the ground underneath it. This is what Jesus' mission was doing. It says that Jesus was the strong man and he had invaded the house and was releasing Satan's captives. Releasing Satan's captives. And Satan's house now is facing an impending doom. His, his territory cannot be claimed, but Jesus is counterclaiming it and saying, no, this is mine. This is mine. And he's doing this by whose power? The, the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. They, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are the ones on mission who are what? Overrunning Satan's kingdom. Ironically, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that the scribes said was demonic, was satanic. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that they said, no, 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 this must be of Beelzebul. And this is how Jesus responds to that. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes, bl- blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So earlier, the scribes had accused Jesus of being empowered and possessed by an evil spirit. And what this does is this kind of forces us to see a contrast. Either Jesus is God who liberates those who are possessed, or he himself is possessed and an agent of Satan. Either Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, or the religious leaders from Jerusalem are. Which is it? This narrative kind of forces us to, to do business with that and sort of pick. In their minds, they had picked. They had established that Jesus was demonic, that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. And in response to that, Jesus makes it really clear that they have fundamentally misunderstood and misattributed who was behind Jesus' works. They've insisted that Jesus is empowered by Satan. This attribution error is what Jesus called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They were attributing to him something evil that was actually something good. And this attribution error is, don't, don't hear me wrong, it's, it's wrong, but it's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is what? That these scribes had sealed themselves off from receiving God's truth. They have, they have turned a blind eye, they have closed themselves off from understanding that God is actually at work in the person of Christ. The root problem doesn't just lie in their accusation that Jesus is working by the devil. The root problem is that they have ruled out the possibility that God is at work. And being closed off to this is what Jesus says makes them guilty of an eternal sin, which leads us to a really important question, like, what, what is an eternal sin? And is there a sin that's not forgivable by God? This text seems to say yes. Jesus seems to say, yeah, 
whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Whoa. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? Well, first, what is blasphemy? What is blasphemy? Blasphemy in general is slander or an insult that devalues another person or being. So blasphemy is a slander or an insult that devalues another person or being. In this situation, though, it was far worse than just a mere insult or or devaluing. It was a settled opposition to and rejection of the one true God. I remember in college, um, there was this video that started to go viral called the Blasphemy Challenge. And does anybody remember this, the Blasphemy Challenge? Rick? Yeah, one of us. It was that lame. Um, What it was, is it was was a number of YouTube users who had uploaded videos of themselves in front of their their computer cameras saying something like, you know, hi, my name's so-and-so, and and, um, I deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. And, and then publishing that for, for anyone to see. Or, or hi, my name's so-and-so, and um, I deny the existence of Jesus. I reject his death. I, I, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It was things like that. And there were multiples of these uploaded. And um, it was really kind of strange. And the movement started to gain some steam. Um, it even had appeared on national news. But overall, it was, it was mostly ridiculous. It was... Uh, in my opinion, a bunch of self-absorbed atheists just trying to propagate their non-religious beliefs in a very um, anti-Christian way, full of the the usual anti-Christian rhetoric. And so this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the the blasphemy challenge that they were doing was, um, on the one hand, totally ridiculous and sort of laughable. Like, really? Like, are you, do you think you're that cute that you're going to film a video of yourselves? It was, it was silly almost. But on the other hand, it demonstrated, I think, something. It demonstrated that these people, at least at that time, were completely closed off to God. It said, I will have nothing to do with truth. I will have nothing to do with God. I will reject Jesus. And that is serious. And that is a state in which Jesus says, you have, you've sealed yourself off. And it's at that point that sometimes God, in judgment, just goes, Okay, have it your way, which is terrifying. And make no mistake, friends, if you die in that state, you have no assurance of forgiveness from your sins. You have separated yourself off from God, and he will pass over you in sorrow. You have no assurance for the forgiveness of your sins. I remember um, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, number of years ago, we were having this conversation, and he, he was a friend who had been a Christian at one time, or at least he said he was a Christian, said he'd, he'd walked with Jesus, and he walked away from the faith, and um, he had, had sewn his eyes shut and closed the doorway of his mind, and we were having a conversation, and I distinctly remember him telling me this. We were, we were talking about faith and different things, and he said, David, I would rather burn in hell than worship the God of the Bible. And I remember just feeling like on my heels, one of my closest friends, the pit of my stomach just turned in, in anguish. And I admired his courage for, for being honest, but I honestly didn't know how to respond. It, it just overwhelmed me. I, David, I would rather burn in hell than worship the God of the Bible. I realized that my friend was content in defying God. 
He wasn't interested in having biblical faith. He had sealed himself off from trusting Christ as Lord. And it was a really, really sad moment for me because he's a very good friend to me. And I felt myself just thinking, why? 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 I didn't ask him that, but we've had multiple conversations since then. And and sometimes I wonder, is he therefore out of the reach of God? No. No. But, But does my friend want to be reached by God? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's that kind of defiance. It's that kind of sealing yourself off from God that Jesus warns against in Mark chapter 3. Note what he says. Look at verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. This is a warning, by the way. This isn't a condemnation to cause anxiety for people. This is a warning. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, oh man, have I, have I committed this? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I in a state of unforgiveness? The answer is, if you're thinking that way, probably not. Probably not. Because if you're thinking that way, what? It, that anxiety evidences at least the potential for repentance. Just think about it this way. If your heart was so hardened that um, you had sealed God off, you wouldn't be sitting here thinking, is my heart hardened? Because if your heart was hardened, you wouldn't care. Right? You wouldn't be worried about that. So if you're thinking, oh, have I committed this unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Probably not. I would say that even some of those, even some of those people who filmed the videos of themselves saying, I, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, maybe they came to Christ later. It's very possible, right? So if you're thinking, have I done this? The answer is probably not. Um, this seems heavy. This text seems maybe a little doom and gloom, like, man, we're talking about unforgiveness here. I thought Christianity forgives everything. What's going on here? Notice that this is a section of Scripture that's not without good news. There is good news here for sure. Look at the statement just before verse 29. Look at verse 28. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Right? All sins. Which ones? All of them. Not just some of them, all of them. There's no record in Scripture of anybody ever going to God, asking for forgiveness, and then being denied it. There's no record of that. All sins, all sins. This is the good news that Christians celebrate in the gospel. The gospel proclaims that what seems unforgivable to us is actually forgivable by God. That should cause our hearts to rejoice. Jesus died and rose again so that we could have forgiveness. And the things that seem so heinous and so wrong and so unforgivable, God actually says what? They're forgivable. Those who trust Christ can have forgiveness of sins. Those who respond in faith to Jesus can have forgiveness of sins. And maybe you're here today and you've said, I've never done that. I don't trust Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I don't know that I have forgiveness of sins. This is telling you, you can. You can trust Jesus today even for the first time. And you can celebrate in the goodness of his forgiveness and his love for you. He will rescue you and he will restore you. Jesus doesn't just rescue and restore us. He also rescued and restored people back then as well. And we see a group of of rescued and restored people here in this next section. So look at verses 31 through 35. 
says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So, earlier we saw the beginning of the story about Jesus' family, right? And they were, what were they saying? They're saying he's out of his mind. And then that story sort of got interrupted, seemingly, by this bit about the, the scribes saying that Jesus was, was possessed. Now, the story of Jesus' family resumes here in this, this last section, 31 through 35. And notice this. These disciples are pressing in to hear Jesus' teaching, and there's so many of them that what? Jesus' family, they can't get in. They're seeking him. They're trying to seize him. They've said he's crazy. We need to, we need to redirect him, get him back to us, right? But they can't. They can't. So what do they do? They're calling for him outside, and eventually that elicits some of the responses of the people around Jesus to say, hey, Jesus, your, your family's outside looking for you. Can you, you, you know what I mean? And notice Jesus' response. It's interesting. And it actually informs the entire point of this whole section of Scripture. He says this to them. Here, pointing to them, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This leads to the central point of today, and that's this, that Jesus' true family and followers submit to Jesus' true power and position. So again, if, if you're a note taker, that's great. This is, this is the only thing, or the, or the main thing I'd say, take home. Jesus' true followers and family submit to Jesus' true power and position. His biological family, they didn't. They didn't get it. They didn't submit to him as Lord, They didn't see the importance of his mission. They didn't recognize him as teacher or Messiah. They weren't interested in his ministry per se. What had they done? They had wrote him off as crazy. Instead of embracing him, they had written him off. Now notice this. It's striking how similar their response is to the response of the scribes. Right? What did they say about him? He's nuts. He's lost his mind. What did the scribes say about him? He's possessed. He's possessed. Mark frames the story this way so that we will see two wrongful responses to the person of Jesus. Saying he's nuts, saying he's possessed, are almost, Mark seems to insinuate, in the same category. Now, this is, this is interesting the way he responds to his family because why? The family was so central. The family was so central his biological family, much like our biological families, would have been the, the core unit through which people found their identity, through which people found um, economic stability. In the first century, the, the, mark of, the mark of membership in a community was vital. In the Old Testament, the words for life and the words for family are used, the Hebrew words are used almost interchangeably. To be part of a family was one's life. And to, to not be part of a family meant to functionally have, to have no life. But what does Jesus do here? He shows us that family, true family, is not demonstrated just in biology, right? Just in blood relationships, but that true family is defined by relationships with God and with others. 
Jesus states that his true family is the family of God who submits to him in his power and his position. Ultimate devotion is to him, who he himself, Jesus, is the head of a new divine family. This is the good news that anyone can be part of this family. It's not just choosy or selective, but anybody who wants to come, they can come. They can be part of this family. Anyone can be sort of an insider, like the people of this house, sitting at Christ's feet, receiving his teaching, and growing in um, unity with one another. Being strengthened by what? The spiritual bond that exists between them. This spiritual bond is something that naturally occurs in the lives of all Christians. And maybe some of you know this to be true uh, in a personal way, like you, you may feel more connected to your brothers and sisters in Christ than maybe you'd feel connected to your biological brother or sister, right? I know this to be true for myself and not for my sister. Some of you know my sister. You're like, wait, I thought she's a believer. She moved to Nashville. She's a heretic now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, she still loves Jesus. Um, my mom and dad love Jesus, and um, I have a great relationship with them. Um, but like my grandparents, for example, they, they would say, we don't follow Jesus, now, am I saying that my grandparents are, are bad people? No, 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 no. I, I love my grandparents. They're great. Um, I was just home last weekend visiting with them. But we don't share the same spiritual unity that I share with many of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, don't hear me wrong. Don't think David hates his grandparents. That's not true, right? I love them. Um, but the spiritual unity that I feel and that we experience with our brothers and sisters in the Lord is significant, and God designed it that way so that we'll have community with each other. Um, so here's what we've seen so far. We're, we're going to kind of t- hopefully tie it together. We saw these first couple verses, 20 and 21, talking about Jesus's family saying that he's crazy, and then this middle section of the scribes saying he's possessed, writing him off, and then this last section of Jesus saying, my, my true family are those who do God's will. And this all ties together with the the main point being that Jesus' true family and followers submit to him in his position as Lord. Jesus' true followers and family submit to him as Lord. So what do do we do with this? What's kind of our takeaway? Um, First thing this means for us personally is that it, it means that there's no default or like proxy membership in God's kingdom. And this is, this is challenging, especially for those of us that have maybe grown up in a, in a Christian culture or grown up in a Christian home. We tend to think that there are things like, well, because I went to a Christian school or because I grew up in a Christian home or because um, I was regular church attender or because I listened to DC Talk or you know, whatever, um, that somehow you're good with God. I, I thought that, personally, not because I listened to DC Talk, because I didn't, but... Um, <laughs> I thought that because my parents were Christians, because I went to church, that I was good with God. I had assumed that, yeah, I'm, I'm by default part of this community. And the reality was, I, I wasn't. It wasn't until I, I placed my faith in Jesus and turned from my sins that he became the Lord of my life and the head of my new community, my new family. And so if you're in a place where you're like, I've, I'm, not, I'm not submitted to Jesus I said this earlier, I'll say it again. You, you can submit to Jesus and he will forgive you of your sins and you will be part of his family. 
you will be part of his family. If you're here and you say, I'm already part of Jesus' family, I've already trusted Christ, what do we take away from this? Well, um, a couple things. Primarily, for those of us who are um, in God's family already, we know instinctively, and I'm not saying just Christians know this, all people know this generally, but we know that we need people around us, right? We need people who will support us, people who will commit to us, and we to them, right? It's not just a, it's not just a one-way street, but it's reciprocal. We're not created to live alone. We're created to live in community with others, and people need that community. People need families to help bear through the difficulties of life. And when there's someone who doesn't have a biological family, the church needs to get busy and be the family to that person or help bring repair to a family that has experienced unrest. We need community. For those of us that are blessed in the family of God, we're blessed so that what? So that we can be a blessing. We are redeemed so that we can be part of redeeming the world around us, right? This this is true for the hurting and the lost, the broken. This is true for those around us that need family, need community, for the child waiting for adoption, for the, um, the, the pregnant young mother without a home, for the kid that aged out of the foster care system and now has no place to live, for the brother or sister battling cancer, for the homeless, um, for the, the, I think of the prison inmates that Frank works with who just need a mentor and a friend to, to love them and accept them, Right? The, the examples are manifold. There's all this need, both inside and outside the church, for us to care for people. And we, we do this because God has cared for us. We're commanded to care for others inside and outside the church. But what does this require of us? It requires more than just sitting in these chairs in this building. This requires that we give our lives This requires that we sacrifice our time and sometimes our money. This requires sometimes late-night phone calls. Why, though? Why? Because this is how we respond to what Jesus has done for us. So how does Redemption Church do this? What does that look like? Okay, that sounds good on paper, David, but how do we get started? Well, primarily, Redemption Church does this kind of... um, ministry in the church and outside the church through what we call RCs, redemption communities. There are small groups. And these small groups meet once a week or or once every other week for the purpose of usually sharing a meal together, praying for one another, um, thinking about and um, trying to connect with those outside of us, caring for our neighbors, and discussing what, what God is doing in our lives and how he's at work in our community. Redemption Arcadia has a number of RCs that meet on the regular um, throughout the week, usually in the evenings. Some of you are already plugged into a group, and that's great, but some of you maybe aren't. And My encouragement to you would be, get plugged into a group. Get plugged into a small group. We're wired for community. And if you have questions about that, come see me. Uh, that's my job here, like, is to oversee the small groups. And so it's my great pleasure and delight to get you plugged into a small group so that you can do life with other believers. And we've got a list of different groups that meet on different nights, and I can give you, I'll be in the back at the end, I can give you one of those, those little handouts and get you connected into a group. So how does, this, how does this work? What has this looked like so far? Just to share a few examples. Um, there, there is a particular small group 
that there was a couple whose toddler got really, really sick. And it was remarkable to watch them care for this family, to come alongside this family. Some of you are part of that small group. You know who you are. Um, cooking meals for this family, praying with this family, crying with this family, caring for them in this, in this time of difficulty. There are other small groups that connect with refugees from Somalia that teach English. They teach them how to navigate the bus system and the challenges and the nuances of American culture. And they say, this is how, this is how we want to bless you, our, our refugee neighbor. There are other small groups that have walked alongside refugees who are just settling and they have, they have nothing. The government's given them a place to live, but they have no bed, they have no couch, they have no cooking utensils, they have no, they have no toilet paper, nothing. And there are communities that have come alongside and said, we're going we're gonna to furnish this apartment. There was another community that just last year very faithfully walked alongside of uh, a dear sister of ours who passed away just at the end of the year. Many of you remember Joyce Campbell. And this, this small group community recognized that she really had no family and they cared for her. They walked alongside her up until her, her last moment even. This is what small groups do. And those are just a few examples. The, the, the number of other examples, I can't name them all. In fact, I probably don't know of all of them because a lot of this stuff happens behind the scenes because pe- God's people are convicted to carry out God's mission and to be a blessing because they are themselves blessed. It's in this context, the context of RCs, that Jesus' true family is submitting themselves to Jesus' true power and position and lordship. So I want to wrap up and I want to tell a story to, to sort of make this point. Um, general Colin Powell, he retired four-star general from the U.S. Army. He tells this story in his book um, about a young soldier who was being interviewed by a, a news correspondent. And the news correspondent asks this young soldier who was part of a tank battalion, on the eve of uh, the night before they're going into battle, this news correspondent asks, are you afraid? Are you scared? And the young soldier said, no. No, I'm not afraid. And I'm not afraid because, and he turns over his shoulder and looks at his buddies in his unit. He says, because they're with me. This is my family. And we take care of one another. We take care of one another. Now, I don't want to press the analogy as though we're going into battle, but the church should be able to say a similar thing in that we look over our shoulder and we say, this is my family. This is my family. And they walk alongside me and I them. And our mission is not to drive a tank, but to take the gospel to the world, to bring hope, to bring restoration, to be ambassadors for Christ together. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die for sin and rise again, and that out of that, our great privilege and response is to be together, to love you together, to have joy, and to have certainty that you are at work. God, we pray that in light of who you are, that our hearts would respond to to love you more and to love others and to serve with a, a genuine sense of adoration of you and excitement for what you're doing in our world. We pray that this would bring you great glory and that it would bring us great joy and that as a response to that, our hearts would be filled God, we thank you. We ask this in your name. Amen.